I am not of sound mind. I cannot seem to stop moving. As I write this, I have clocked 7,000 miles by truck in the last 30 days, and I'm hunkered in a motel room high in the Rocky Mountains, and yet no nearer to God. I seek roots, just so long as they can accommodate themselves to around 75 miles an hour and no unseemly whining about rest stops or sit-down dinners. I am, I suspect, a basic American, a perpetual violation that loves the land and cannot kick the addiction of velocity, a person fated never to settle, yet always seeking the place to settle. Like cocaine-powered athletes, lying presidents, Miss America, and the Internal Revenue Service, I am not a role model, and I'm always hungry. I can only make a stab at writing the truth if I tell others it is fiction. That way nobody gets too upset with me. I can only get started writing if I think it is music. That way I beat back my own cowardice. I can only write if I don't think at all. Okay, my name is uh, Meg Keppen, and we're at my house outside of Aravaca, Arizona. Uh, Chuck came out here to Aravaca to visit a friend of his that was on the run from the law and from the mafia, actually. And um, we met at a social gathering. He was, I think, looking for a story, you know, uh, history of Aravaca. A Wave of the Hand was the title that he put on the story. I'm not quite sure how I got to be one of the main characters, probably just circumstance, having just met him at the party and our mutual interests. And it's always embarrassing to see, see yourself in there, you know, exposed, if you will. But, uh, well, this is the beginning of A Wave of the Hand by Charles Bowden. The ceiling light paints the windows milk, and we sit in the ranch house, sealed off from the summer night, on the walls are huge paintings of Indians and of mountain passes. She is talking, and there is this simple strand of things I notice. Her quick, bright words, the light painting, the windows milk, the big paintings. The house is not her house. It is not my house. It's a kind of no man's land. The occupant is a friend of mine, and he is on the run. For her, it is not the same, but similar. She is very quick, with eyes that can only be called bright, blue, focused, alert, intelligent, eyes waiting like a hungry cat and ready to pounce. I'll tell you a simple story that will save time. The Border Patrol likes to descend on Chorizo like wolves and prowl about people's property, looking for dope. These visitations violate various parts of the Bill of Rights, and she cannot abide such behavior. So one night she hears the squad car prowling down her country lane and she leaps out of bed around four in the morning and storms out. She's standing in the glare of the headlights giving the officers a piece of her mind when she notices she's bucked naked. Yep, <laughs> there she is. <laughs> My name is Clara Jeffrey and I'm a senior editor at Harper's Magazine. And I first started with working with Chuck almost five years ago on a piece on Juarez and 
women who were working there in the maquiladoras and who were disappearing and, and their bodies were being found, sort of mutilated. And the way that he approached it was by sort of profiling the city through these photographers who were actually out there shooting sort of scenes of street crimes and, and everything that was going on. And sort of by telling the story of a city through the story of photographers who were documenting it, he managed to stack up these layers of visual imagery as well as reporting. And in a way that I just found really magical. I mean, he was, he was I think he really understands and is sort of simultaneously attracted and repulsed by the dark side of human nature. Um, I mean, not to sound too much like Star Wars, but I think he understands how the dark and the light fit together and how, you know, you can't really have one without the other. Um, and it's right on those peripheries um, that things get interesting. I mean, he can write in one sense or a paragraph and give you a sense of what's great about America, but also what's just so brutal and horrible about it. Imagine the problem is not physical. Imagine the problem has never been physical. That it is not biodiversity. It is not the ozone layer. It is not the greenhouse effect. The whales, the old growth forests, the loss of jobs, the crack in the ghetto, the abortions, the tongue in the mouth, the diseases stalking everywhere as love goes on, unconcerned. Imagine the problem is not some syndrome of our society, not something that can be solved by commissions or laws or a redistribution of what we call wealth. Imagine that it goes deeper, right to the core of what we call our civilization, and that no one outside of ourselves can affect real change, that our civilization, our governments are sick, and that we are mentally ill and spiritually dead and that all our issues and crises are symptoms of this deeper sickness. Imagine the problem is not physical, and no amount of driving, no amount of road will help deal with the problem. Imagine that the problem is not that we are powerless or that we are victims, but that we have lost the fire and belief and courage to act. We hear whispers of the future, but we slap our hands against our ears. We catch glimpses, but we turn our faces swiftly aside. The whistle is always blowing. There is no denying what is before my eyes. We all know the future. We only must say it and face it. There will be no first hundred days for this future. There will be no five-year plans. There will be no program. Imagine the problem is that we cannot imagine a future where we possess less but are more. Imagine the problem is a future that terrifies us because we lose our machines but gain our feet and pounding hearts. Then what is to be done? My name is Barbara Seanfield. I live in Plano, Texas. And uh, Plano, Texas has had a problem with heroin overdoses uh, in their children. And I was speaking at the city hall uh, about the heroin problem and the fact that I had lost my son to heroin. Charles Bowden was there. After I spoke, he came up to me and told me that um, he was interested in interviewing me further about uh, what I had said. 
and I was a little bit taken aback. Uh, he told me it was with Esquire magazine, and my first reaction was, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, what is someone from Esquire magazine doing in the audience here in Plano, Texas? Uh, also, he didn't look like your typical author. I mean, he did not look like a Dominic Dunn. He had uh, longish hair, a turquoise shirt, and just looked like an ordinary type guy, except maybe more like a biker. Um, when it came out, I knew it was coming out, so I ran down to uh, the nearest grocery store and picked it up off the magazine rack and stood there and read it with tears streaming down my face. Because I'll be honest with you, the man caught my feelings. He knew what I was going through. He knew what my husband was going through. And he put it to paper. He didn't make it maudlin. It was just very stark and it was there. Barbara Seanfield pours me a cup of coffee and then leads me into the living room. The house runs around 400,000, sports a mansard roof, and has the whiff of a French chateau. She points out the family portraits all bunched together on a table, and there is a snapshot of Matt, a clean-shaven, solid kid. And she tells me that's her favorite shot, something about the eyes, she says, that really captures her boy. And then she takes me back to the dining table that rests at the elbow of a big L, formed by the spacious kitchen in the mammoth family room. And there over the fireplace is a painting based on the photograph. And Matt looks down with keen eyes, and his eyes have a kind of dreamy quality, and that fits because he was a quirky kid who could have a good time wandering his own imagination. A funny kid, always alert to the absurdity of life and all that is in the painting and peering out from the eyes. There's something else in the painting a kind of furtive gaze, the gaze of a hunted animal. And that is part of what Barbara Seanfield wants to talk about also. She's a woman who knows in her bones how them became us. He captured my son completely. He was a funny kid. He was alert to the absurdity of life. And he did have these dreamy eyes. And the world was a very painful place for Matt. And I think that, that Chuck Bowden realized that and captured that just by looking at that painting of him. Well, I'm uh, Max Cleland, and I'm a member of the United States Senate from Georgia. Uh, Esquire magazine wanted to do a feature article on me, and uh, I guess because I was one of the few Vietnam veterans in the Senate, and also because uh, I was the only multiple amputee in the Senate, having lost both legs and my right arm in Vietnam, in a grenade explosion, and I had never met uh, Chuck Bowden before. I've been interviewed by, I guess, uh, literally hundreds of people in the last 31 years. He's the single finest uh, interviewer, storyteller, writer that I've ever come across. He has an ability to capture people uh, and their who they are, uh, who they really are, uh, below the surface. He, he, he knows the surface story. And he'll narrate the surface story. But he captures, uh, and certainly did for me, a psychological dimension that I'm not even aware of myself. For instance, he starts off and says, describing just my early first movements in the day. He says, the day always begins with the left arm. The clock reads 5.30 or 6 a.m., the plaque next to the bed always whispers the same thing. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. 
That's it. The glowing numbers announced the time, the velvet darkness, and then, with the light switched on, the line whispering off the plaque. The body sits up. And this is the hard part to state, because here the words fail. The left arm of the body grabs the left arm of the waiting chair. The body leans forward and begins to arc through the air. And as the body arcs, it is poised over the left arm of the chair. And then it twirls and turns a full 180 degrees and settles into the seat of the chair. Then he gets into the old inspiration thing. Uh, meditation floods the morning hours. It's the drug Max Cleland craves. The desk in his Senate office is scattered with biblical quotes and other writings. He quotes me, he says, I need every bit of motivation I can possibly get, Cleveland offers by way of explanation. And an old hymn sings out, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid by your faith in his excellent works. A block of type insists, If it is to be, it's up to me. Then there's the Tennyson's Ulysses, a bit of Psalms, some Jeremiah, a taste of Ephesians, and a brass clock engraved, Take it to the max. The cops look at me with anger, drag her slumping form away, and toss her into the back of a squad car. I stand still, make no notes. Then I go back to the newsroom and write up the funeral. That is when it begins. The toddler's death probably didn't have anything to do with child molestation, but for me this child became the entry point to rape and other categories of abuse. For the next three years, I live in a world where the desire of people, almost always men, to touch and have their way with others makes them criminals. Gradually, I begin to lose the distinction between the desires of criminals and the desires of the rest of us. I'm told I can't get off this beat because most reporters won't do it. This may be true. I don't really know because those three years are the only ones I've ever spent working for a newspaper and practically the only ones I ever spent working for anyone besides myself. I'd quit the paper twice, break down more often than I can remember, and I'd have to go away for a week or two and kill, through violent exercise, the things that roam my mind. It was during this period that I began taking 100 or 200 mile walks in the desert far from any trails. I would write these flights from myself up, and people began to talk about me as a nature writer. The rest of my time was spent with another nature, the one we call, by common consent, deviant or marginal or unnatural. My name is Mike Manning. I'm a lawyer in Phoenix, Arizona. I first met Chuck Bowden in about 1991 when Chuck was researching a book uh, on, on Charlie Keating. I've never met anybody uh, who had uh, as insightful a judgment as uh, Chuck Bowden has. He has a, a depth of knowledge about our government, our uh, political system, our business system, which I think uh, is unparalleled. I think he has no peer in that regard. He is perpetually disheveled. Um, his hair is always a mess and longer than it should be. He always looks like he could have used another four or five hours sleep the night before, and, and that's probably correct. He's probably been up reading. Um, he used, when I knew him, when I first knew him, he was, um, he was a chain smoker, or nearly so. Uh, very thin, um, 
always dressed as if uh, he's about to make a trek into into one of our deserts here in, in Arizona. Uh, but I'll tell you, when when he when he looks into your eyes and starts starts talking, he is very penetrating. Uh, and this man has a physical presence. Once he starts uh, talking with you, if he's trying to find something out about you or about what you do or about what you think. You have, you have very little chance of keeping that hidden if you spend more than 20 minutes with this guy. Um, and he pulls it off by, by being uh, agendaless. I mean, when, you meet, when he, you meet with this guy, this is not a journalist that is out there to prosecute a certain agenda. He wants to find out the truth, and he wants to explain the truth as best he can. And I think that's disarming uh, to, to people like me and a person like Charles Keating. Uh, if, if Ke- all, all Keating wanted to do was have a fair shot in the press, and I f- think that Chuck Bowden made him feel like he was going to get a fair shot, and indeed he got a fair shot. I'm Gary Webb, and um, I wrote a book called Dark Alliance a couple of years ago um, about the CIA and drug trafficking. And before that, I was a newspaper reporter for about 20 years for you know major dailies and did a lot of investigative reporting. And Chuck... Um, he had been following from afar, mainly over the web and email, um, what had happened to me as a result of the series I did for the San Jose Mercury News, which pointed out how the CIA and uh, the Contras had um, worked on this fairly elaborate drug network during the 1980s that dumped you know, hundreds of tons of cocaine into South Central Los Angeles. And so... After I quit the newspaper, because the newspaper wouldn't stick up for me, um, he came to see me to find out, you know, who I was and um, h- how this happened. And and he, he wasn't easy. I mean, he asked a lot of hard and tough questions um, because I think he had doubts about it initially himself. And, and, and I think that's the way he should have approached the story. I was very impressed with the guy. Um, he, he went out and found things that I didn't find when I was doing my investigation which fascinated me because he wasn't even working on the story and he found some great evidence to substantiate what I had written about. So um, reading the story, I thought I was an expert in the issue and I read his story and learned things. Here's the gist of the problem. We can't stop drugs from entering the United States because our border with Mexico is the most heavily crossed one on Earth and at 1,995 miles in length, unpoliceable. We can't stop Mexicans from illegally entering the United States because that nation is poor, overpopulated, and growing. And if the poor do not come north, Mexico implodes. We can't force the Mexican government to seriously crack down on the drug trade because the country is dependent on drug money for its survival. And we can't stop money laundering or the transfer of billions of narco dollars back and forth across the border because of the North American Free Trade Agreement and because of the sheer velocity of modern capital flows. And we can't discuss these matters because for years both political parties have made it an act of faith that the war on drugs, the 1986 immigration reform bill, NAFTA, and a steel wall here and there on the border are taking care of the problem. And you cannot believe what I have just said because, well, you haven't heard it before.
you know, you feel very often at the beginning of one of his pieces, it's it's like you've been on the roller coaster that's been ratcheted all the way up to the top, and just as you read the first line, you're plummeting <laughs> down, and you know, God knows where you're going. You know, you 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 have to be prepared to sort of get clocked on the head when you read when you read Chuck. Chuck's depth and feeling for the subjects he writes about is such that I think it frightens people. But to me, it just, uh, from the very first, it just grabbed me and pulled me in with its straight-to-the-heart truth. Um, There's just so many layers uh, to what the picture that he's painting for us that uh, it just draws you right in. And even if it's a place you don't want to live, it's very interesting to be there for a while. It's just so alive, and I like being fully alive. So this is how you know you will go. You will turn from the bar, and they will say you must come with them. Your arms are grasped, and you're out the door before you can even remember to grab that drink. The faces of the customers blur as you go by, and later you will remember all those faces turning away or looking down at the floor. The wrists will be instantly taped together, The legs possibly also will be bound at this time, and maybe tape over the mouth. You land hard on the floor of the vehicle, the engine starts, you sense movement, and then the kicking begins, and all you notice is the cracking of your rib cage. You have begun to disappear, and yet you still exist, exist in your mind and in your pain. But back there where the drink sits waiting on the bar, Back there, you no longer exist. In fact, back there, everyone is beginning to understand that you never existed. A stab of pain, a white sheet of flame reaches up and burns your head as a boot smashes your testicles. 